My name is Jared. I just want to welcome you to today's service, whether you're in person or online today. And we are in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 today. And today's message is entitled, The Grace of God. And if you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, just put your hand up in the air, and there's some gentlemen that will bring a Bible to you. Ephesians chapter 2. Well, we are studying verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned at Rome, and he wrote this letter to encourage the believers in their faith. Last week, we read Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and from his prayer, we recognized three of our greatest needs in life. It was to know God more, to know the hope of His calling, and to know His power toward us. And Paul prayed for those three things for the Ephesians, that they would grow in all three of those areas. Now, in chapter 2, Paul begins to discuss God's grace in saving us. In today's message, we'll answer questions like, are humans born good, bad, or neutral? What are two of Satan's most dangerous lies? Are we saved by faith or works? And how do those two go together? And so let's jump in to our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We read about our position before and after Christ. So verse 1. Paul says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, quick tangent here. I want to point out that if you're in the New King James Version, you'll notice that he made alive are in italics there in that first verse. Italicized words in your Bibles were not in the original language. Those were added by the translators. You see, English uses different grammar than Greek or Hebrew, so sometimes they add words in italics to make the grammar correct in English. Other times, like here in verse 1, they add these words to help clarify what Paul's talking about. But note that these words that they add, they don't change the meaning of the text. In fact, later on in verse 5, Paul is going to say, God made us alive. So they're not putting, the translators are not putting their own interpretation into the Bible. They're just trying to add these words to help clarify what Paul is already saying. I wanted to point this out to you because I want you to be a good student of the Bible, to know that the words that are in italics in your Bibles were added by the translators, and they put them in italics because they're not trying to hide anything. The translators are trying to be upfront and clear. And so I want you to know that so that you can read and understand God's word better and know that the Bible translation you have in your hands, you can trust. And so look at verse one again. Paul says, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says that the Ephesians, before they trusted in Jesus, They were dead in trespasses and sin. Paul's not talking about physical death, but spiritual death. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. When they took the forbidden fruit and they ate of it, 
and they broke God's command, they sinned for the very first time. And when that happened, we read in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? And so Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Notice the difference for Adam and Eve. Before sin, before being spiritually dead, they had fellowship with God. But after their sin, they died spiritually, and they hid from God. They were afraid of God's presence. Notice that in this passage, God asked them, where are you? Now, does God know all things? Yeah. So when God says, where are you, it's not because God was like, I could have sworn I left them right here. Where did they go? But no, God was asking this question to point out to Adam, look at where you are. Look at the difference before and after your sin. Your position before me is so different than before because now you're dead in sin. You see, sin separates us from God. It breaks our fellowship with God. Sin makes us spiritually dead. That's why we read in the first part of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. This is so important for us to know and to understand. Every single person since Adam and Eve is born spiritually dead. And the reason is because of our trespasses, because of our sins. If you want to take notes today, your first fill in the blank, it says you and I were born spiritually dead. You and I were born spiritually dead. There we go. I figured it out. Now, for many, that's a hard pill to swallow. We don't like to think of ourselves as in need, let alone to think of ourselves as being that bad. In fact, when we look in the mirror, we may see some minor faults, but it's usually pretty easy for us to find out who to blame other than ourselves for those faults. Pastor Larry Osborne puts it this way. He says, Here's what we'd all like to believe. Number one, at our core, we are basically good. Number two, the path to heaven is found in sincerity and morality. As long as you're sincere and you have pretty good morals, you'll get there. We'd also like to believe that God grades on a curve, and I'm clearly above average. All three of these beliefs sound really nice. But the problem is that all three of these beliefs are lies from Satan. We'd like to think that at our core, we're basically good. But God says at our core, we are all spiritually dead. I've got some verses for each of these points here that are on your bulletins, but I'm not going to turn to each of them. So we're all spiritually dead at our core. We'd like to think that everyone who is sincere and moral will get to heaven. But God says the only way to heaven is by trusting in Jesus. 
We'd like to think that God grades on a curve and that I'm above average, but God says that He grades in righteousness and that you must be perfect. The reason all of this is so important is, on your note sheet, before we can be saved, we must know that we are hopelessly lost. Before we can be saved, we have to know that we're hopelessly lost. One of the biggest reasons people reject the gospel, the reason they reject the good news of Jesus, is that they don't understand the bad news. They don't understand or agree that we are hopelessly lost. They don't understand their sin separates them from God. They don't understand that they are spiritually dead. Now, to be spiritually dead means two things. Again, on your note sheet. Number one, it means that we are separated from God, and it means that we cannot fix it. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. We're separated from God, and you and I can't fix it. That's our position apart from Jesus, separated from Him without hope. And that's the position that we stay in unless you put your faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician. They don't need to go to the doctor. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' point in this verse is not that only some people are sinners. Jesus' point is that only some people admit they are sinners. And until you admit it, Jesus is of no use for you. It's not good news to you. Without the knowledge that you are dead in your sin, you cannot understand your need for Jesus to die in your place. And so back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is a description of Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. Elsewhere in Scripture, like in John 12, 31, Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world. Think about that. Jesus clarifies for us that Satan has real power and real authority in this world. But we should also recognize that Satan's authority and power are limited. While Satan is called the ruler of this world, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God still limits what Satan can do. That's why Satan had to ask for God's permission in Job chapter 1. God is in control of all things, even Satan. And God will use all things, even Satan, for his ultimate plan and glory. So, as Satan exercises his limited authority and his limited power, Paul says that Satan works in the sons of disobedience. In other words, Satan works among those who are not yet Christians. Well, how does Satan do that? Well, it's with his lies. Satan opposes the word of God with his lies, trying to lead people away from the truth. 
And I want to point out two of Satan's most dangerous and successful lies today. The first one we've already talked about. It's the lie that says, you're not really sick. You're not really sick. You're not all that bad. It's the lie that says, you don't really need Jesus because, after all, you can find a lot of people that are worse off than you are. That's a dangerous lie. The second most dangerous lie of Satan is this. God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really love you. It's the lie that says, if God really loved you, then he wouldn't let you suffer. If God really loved you, then why is there pain or loss or tragedy in this life? But Jesus didn't come to suffer and die to rescue us from earthly, temporary pain. Jesus came to rescue us from eternal pain and separation. Sadly, there are many so-called Christians who put their faith in Jesus, but they fizzle out because life is hard. They expected Jesus to make their life easier or more comfortable. Friends, you must not trust in Jesus so that your life will be easy. You must trust in Jesus so that your life will be eternal. That's the reason he came. That's the hope that we have. And Paul says he's convinced the suffering we may endure here is nothing to compare with the glory we will have in heaven. That is our hope. So the Bible doesn't say, stop whining. Suffering's not real. No, the Bible says suffering is real. It does hurt. But the Bible says Jesus has overcome it. In John 16, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Don't put your hope in the comforts of this life. You'll be disappointed. Put your hope in Jesus for eternal life, and your hope will be fulfilled. So look with me again at verse 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. You see, before you trusted in Jesus, both you and I walked according to the course of this world. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. And we conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Here we see our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul explains that we were stuck dead in our sin. We were beaten and enslaved by our flesh. We were duped and conquered by Satan. We were lost just like the rest of the world, without hope. And then we have two glorious words. Look at verse 4. It starts off with, but God. Man, those are two words you need to circle and underline and highlight in your Bibles because the place that we were was without hope. But God, 
when you and I could do nothing to fix our position. We were simply dead in our sins. God stepped in to do what you and I could not do ourselves. And so verse 4, Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. First of all, I love here that God is described as rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. On your note sheet, remember, mercy means not getting what you deserve. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. Mercy is when you break the law and you get off with just a warning. Because we have sinned against God, who is holy and perfect, we deserve eternal separation from Him in hell. But God, who is rich in mercy towards us, He saved us. And notice why He saved us right there in verse 4. Because of His great love with which He loved us. That's why He offers salvation to you and to me. It's because He loves us. Notice when God loves us. There in verse 4, it's even when we were dead in trespasses. This is so important to understand. Your next fill in the blank on your note sheet. God loved you while you were still dead in sin. That's when God loved you. Before you did anything but sin and rebel. If we think that God loves us because we've done something to earn it, or we think God loves us because we've done something to be worthy of it, then God's love becomes dependent upon you. You might think, man, I better keep it up and be good or God will stop loving me. But that's not who God is. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing. You see, I don't care what sins you've committed. I don't care how long you've run from God. I don't care how well you've expressed your hatred of God. No matter what you've done, God loves you. He proved it by dying on the cross in your place, offering you His mercy and grace, eternal life. And He invites you, yes, even you, to receive His mercy. If you put your faith in Jesus, then you immediately transform from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. That's what we talk about when we use the phrase to be born again, to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Look back at Ephesians 2. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. If you were here last week, you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talked about God's power toward us, and he was trying to explain and express how great God's power is. And he said, God's power is so great that God took Jesus' dead body, crucified and beaten and, and, and destroyed, dead for three days, and he raised that body back to life. That's how powerful God is. 
Well, here we see that God's power is also so great that he can take you and me spiritually dead and bring us to spiritual life. He can make you and I alive. Amazing. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But that's not all that God does for you. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, and he says, And God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Physically, we're still here on earth, but our spiritual position is in heaven. That's where we belong. That is our true home. Remember last week in Ephesians 1, verse 20, about God's power, Paul said, which God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God's power took Jesus, raised him again, and put Jesus in heaven. Well, here in chapter 2, Paul's saying he does the same thing for you and me. He takes us from being spiritually dead, puts us as spiritually alive. God's power takes you and I who are of this world, and he declares you're no longer of this world, but you are of heaven because you are in Christ. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We already saw why God made us alive and placed us with him in heaven. It was because of his great love for us. But what was his purpose? Yes, he loves us, but does he have a plan and a purpose for why he saves us? Well, Paul tells us that purpose in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, He did this so that in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, when you buy something today, you buy it because you have a purpose for it. And after that purpose is fulfilled, you might donate it or throw it in the garbage or get rid of it. Well, God purchased you with his blood, the blood of Jesus. And his purpose is that in the ages to come, to show you his exceeding grace toward you. You see, in heaven, on your note sheet, we are living, breathing, walking trophies of his grace. We are trophies of his grace. For all eternity, God wants you to be with him so that he can say, yep, there's Jared. He was a real sinner. He was dead in his sin, without hope, in fact. But I saved him. I rescued him. I redeemed him. And I filled him with my spirit. I don't know about you, but I love the idea that God has this eternal purpose for me. And what's even better about that eternal purpose for me is that it's not dependent on me. It's not like one day, a million years into eternal life, I can screw up and no longer be a trophy of God's grace because, 
The whole point is that I already blew it. And God gave me His grace, and He saved me anyway. The whole point is that God is the one who gets the glory. And so I'm there for all eternity simply so that God can say, look, I saved him. Look at what I made out of that dead, good-for-nothing guy. (laughs) Amazing. And for all eternity, just because I'm there, God is glorified. And we get to see how great his grace is. Amazing. Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2 with an incredible pair of verses. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. These are two verses that should also be underlined or highlighted in your Bibles because it's one of the best passages in Scripture to clearly explain that we are saved by Jesus' work, not by our work, not by our effort. We are saved by grace. Now, earlier we mentioned how mercy means not getting something you deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment that you deserve. Now we're talking about grace. And there on your note sheet, grace means getting something something good that you don't deserve. Grace means getting something that you don't deserve. You see, in God's mercy, He does not give us eternal separation from Him in hell. In God's grace, He gives us eternal life, forever joining us to Himself in heaven. Paul says that this salvation is not of yourselves. You don't earn it. You don't get saved by being good. You don't get saved by not sinning. You don't get saved by going to church. You don't get saved by reading your Bible. You don't get saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. All of these are considered works. And you're not saved by works. Works cannot save us because we're dead in our sin and trespasses. That's why Paul says our salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, if you were saved by your works, then you would have something to boast about. But we're not saved by our works. We're only saved by Jesus' finished work on the cross on our behalf. So we can only boast in Him, boast in His work. Now, you might ask, if we're saved by grace, then what is the role of works? Are works still important? And that's what Paul goes on to answer in the very next verse, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says, You and I were created for good works. In fact, long ago, God prepared a list of good works that He wants you to walk in. So, if we put this on a timeline, it might look something like this. In the beginning, God had a plan for you, for your life. He knew the good works that He wants you to walk in. Before you were born, God the Son came down 
and he lived a perfect life, and then he died on the cross on your behalf, completing the full, completing in full the work for your salvation. Then you were born. And although you were born a beautiful, adorable little baby, you were born dead in your sin. Rotten sinners, all of us. And at some point in your life, you recognized that you were spiritually dead. You recognized that you desperately needed God's mercy and grace. And so you trusted in Jesus. And at that moment, the very instant of your conversion, God declares you righteous. God declares you perfect, holy. Your sins, past, present, and future, all paid in full. And finally, as a result of being in Christ, you now walk in these good works, which God had prepared for you way back in the beginning. But note, you don't fulfill those good works in your own strength, in your own effort, by your own power, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, changing you from the inside out, empowering you to walk in these works that God had prepared for you. So you see on your note sheet, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. We're not saved by doing good works, but we are saved so that we can do good works as a result of being saved. This is what James discusses in James chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. James says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness." And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So James is explaining to us here that if you say that you have faith in Jesus, but you have no works, there's no change in your life, nothing is different, then your faith is dead. If you look at the timeline of your life and you can point to your conversion, you can say, this is the day that I got baptized or this is the day that I prayed that sinner's prayer to ask for God's mercy and grace. But afterwards, you can't point to any part of your life where you're walking in the Spirit. Then James says your faith is dead. You may have knowledge of Jesus, but you haven't put your faith in him. If that's you, then you need to go back to square one. Put your faith in Jesus. Recognize you are dead in your sin and cry out for God's mercy and grace. And this time, you do it with repentance. Repentance means to change your mind. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're not just agreeing with the fact, yeah, Jesus really was alive and he really did die on the cross and rise again for me but you're putting your faith in him, it means that you're trusting that he will save you and you're agreeing with Jesus that your life apart from him is dead. And you're no longer going to live for yourself, but you're going to live for 
God. And so, James uses Abraham here as an example of how faith and works go together. We read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, it's, and then verses 5 and 6, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, or Abraham, in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Then verse 5, it says, Then God brought Abraham outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. In other words, because Abraham believed God's promise, God declared Abraham righteous. He's no longer dead in sin. Abraham is spiritually alive. He's born again. You see, at this time, Abraham was old and childless. Yet God said that he would give Abraham and his wife a natural-born child, even in their old age. Even more than that, this child would go on to produce so many descendants that it would be like the stars in the sky, too many to count, too many to number. And so even though Abraham and his wife were well beyond childbearing years, he believed that God would do it. He believed that God would somehow do this thing. Abraham trusted God's word. He trusted God to fulfill that promise. If we put Abraham's life on a timeline, then this would be the moment of salvation for Abraham, the moment that he trusted God would fulfill his promise. God declared Abraham righteous. And from that moment on, Abraham was headed for heaven. Not because Abraham was good, but because he put his faith in the God who is good. But James says it was Abraham's works that proved his faith to be genuine. You see, it was years later after Abraham had finally been given that natural-born son, that miracle child, Isaac, that God told him to do the unthinkable. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, Then God said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. How in the world is Isaac going to become the father of a great innumerable multitude if he's offered as a burnt offering before he's even a father? How does that fit with God's promise? Well, that's the point. It doesn't. And yet Abraham had a choice to make. If Abraham refused, then it would indicate that he didn't really believe God could fulfill his promise. Abraham would be thinking, well, I need to help God out, and he must have forgot about his promise. So I'm going to not offer my son, and I'm going to help God out. But Abraham didn't do that. Abraham obeyed the Lord, and at the very last moment before he brought the knife down on his son, God stopped him, and he says, okay, stop. Now I know that you're going to obey me. Now I know that you love me more than anything else in the world. You see, for Abraham, if there was any one thing in this world that could become an idol in his life, anything that Abraham might be tempted to love more than God himself, 
It would have been that son, Isaac, that miracle child. And God says, I took you through this so that you could pass this test and you could show that you love me more than anything. And I'm not going to make you kill your son. I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to give you my son in his place one day. But James here, he says it was because of Abraham's work of taking Isaac to the mountain as a burnt offering. That work is what proved Abraham's faith was real. That work that was later in Abraham's life proved that his faith that was back in Genesis chapter 15, it was real faith. It was genuine faith. It wasn't false or fake. Abraham really did trust that God was going to fulfill his promise. Abraham's works came after his salvation, but those works proved his faith was genuine. So, your last fill in the blank on your note sheet, real faith works. Real faith works. You see, without faith, excuse me, without works, your faith is dead. If you really trust God to do what he said he would do, then your life will be changed. So then, what is God's promise to you and to me? What are we supposed to trust God to do? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God declares you and I to be dead in our sin, without hope. God declares that we deserve his wrath, eternal separation from him in hell. And yet he offers you and me his mercy and grace. If you trust in Jesus, you will be declared forgiven of all of your sin. He will consider you holy and perfect, and he will give you eternal life in heaven with himself. So, do you believe this? Do you believe that God will save you, forgive you, and rescue you when you die? Not because you were good enough or because you jumped through enough hoops or because you tried really hard or because you were sincere or because you were better than your neighbor. Do you believe he'll save you because your hope is in Jesus who lived the perfect life on your behalf and then died in your place paying the debt that you and I could not pay? If you believe that God will save you because your faith is in him, Well, the Bible calls that faith. You're trusting in God's promise. And by the authority of Jesus, you are accounted as righteous. That's incredible. Even though you might blow it today, even though you might go home and be tempted and sin, God says, I've already declared you as righteous because your righteousness is based on Jesus, not based on you. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, lest you could boast. Therefore, because we are saved, walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to do.
Walk in those works in the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking to obey what God is leading you to do. Walk in the Spirit and obey because it brings glory to God and because this is what you were created for, to walk in these works. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, Paul is not saying you work out that salvation. You got to earn it. No, we just talked about this. We're saved by grace. But Paul says, you are saved, so walk it out. Live as if you are saved. Live as if Jesus has purchased you and filled you with his spirit and empowered you to walk in the good works which he has prepared beforehand for you to do. Notice in that verse that it's God who works in you both to will and to do. Maybe you say, well, I've, I've trusted in Jesus. My faith is in him, but I, sometimes I just don't want to obey him. It's a good thing to recognize. But you can pray and say, Lord, I don't want to, but please change my heart. God, give me the will to obey you. God, give me the desire to know you more, to walk in obedience. And God, don't just give me the desire, but God, give me the power to do so. Give me the ability to say yes to you and to say no to my flesh, to say no to the enemy, and to say no to this world. You're saved by grace. Praise the Lord. But salvation is not an invitation to sit down and do nothing. You are saved. It's an invitation to stand up in Christ, to walk in the Spirit, and to work for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for the gift of simply being able to open up our Bibles and to read and to know you better. God, to be challenged by your word. God, to have a Bible that we can read and see what are you telling us to do or not to do. God, what have you done for us in the past? And God, what do you promise for us in the future? And God, we just ask that you would help us to be a church that says, Lord, would you change our hearts more so that we have the desire to obey you? And then, Lord, would you give us the strength that we need to walk in those works that you've prepared for us to do? God, if there's anybody here today or listening online that has not put their faith in you, maybe they've put their faith in their works or they've been at peace because they're sincere in their beliefs or they're trying to be moral or they've been doing a pretty good job of doing more good than bad in their life. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to their heart and tear down those lies. And God, that your truth would be planted in their heart and that that truth would bear good fruit. 
as you simply look to Jesus and you say, you know what, as much as I don't want to believe it, I am dead in my sin. And I deserve eternal separation from you in hell. So God, please don't give me what I deserve. But God, would you give me your mercy and grace? God, would you save me? And God, would you change my life? God, we are so thankful that you take us as we are, wherever we are, no matter where we've come from. And Lord, you call us your adopted sons and daughters. God, help us to better understand the riches of your grace. And God, today, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit as you empower us to walk in obedience to you. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.